Welcome to Nothing Confidential, the podcast. I'm Kristen Henke, your hostess with the mostest, guide from the side, and mistress of ceremonies. Together, we're about to explore and deconstruct the shame and stigma surrounding our sexuality. You heard that right. We're going deep on the topics of sex, relationships, spirituality, health, and everything else that impacts our ability to live, love, and orgasm freely. My hope is to shine a light on our shared experiences by normalizing taboo topics and empowering each of you to reclaim autonomy of your pleasure, your bodies, and your lives. You are now entering a judgment-free zone where I ask all the uncomfortable and embarrassing questions for you. Our unofficial mantra is be curious, not judgmental. So leave your inner prude at the door or strap her in tight because this is happening. Hi, guys. It's Kristen and James. Yes, my little wing woman is flying next to me today on just the intro portion of the show. It's actually funny. Uh, Time warp. She wasn't born when I recorded this episode. (laughs) I was in the final days of the third trimester, impatiently waiting on her arrival. As you will hear towards the end of the episode, I crack a little bit. Um... I had a therapist in front of me and I just went for it with all of the things I was feeling at that time. So if you are currently pregnant, I hope that that portion of the episode serves you in some way. Uh, Otherwise, you just get a peek inside of what was happening with me not that long ago. And it's crazy because as of this very moment when I'm recording this, Um, baby James is three months old today. So time flies. Good grief. Time flies. And she is so cute and she was worth every single second of it. But anyway, enough about that. I am just blissed out to offer you today's guest. Catherine Friedman, LPC, is a psychotherapist, sex therapist, sex and kink educator, and community organizer in private practice in Portland, Oregon. Her practice, StumptownSexTherapy.com, is grounded in principles of trauma, informed embodiment, mindfulness, sex positivity, and interpersonal growth. She works as a therapist with individuals in navigating histories of complex relational trauma, building strong identities, and discovering and expressing their sexual individuality. She also provides therapy to couples around issues of communication and sexuality, as well as alternative relationship and sexual styles. She loves helping clients discover and embrace new desires and overcome obstacles to sexual self-expression. She teaches and coaches people on ethical non-monogamy and BDSM basics, as well as classes on self-awareness for informed consent, trauma awareness, and empowerment for people who are interested in exploring submission or other kink identities and activities. Catherine is an incredible incredible educator, therapist, woman, like this woman is so, she's just dynamic as hell, you guys. And her energy is like, she's been practicing mindfulness for years. So I feel kind of like she's a shrink mixed with this like sexy Taoist, like I don't know. I don't even have the words. I don't even have the words. You're going to see. You're going to see for yourself. Just listen to this episode and tell me that she doesn't just soothe the pants right off of you and then educate you and help you deal with your shit so that you know what to do once your pants are off. <laughs> oh, bless you. I'll taste away. Um, 
So I'm just, I'm excited to share. This is going to be an interesting episode for a lot of you because I address an anonymous question that I received around faking orgasms. So we spend a really big portion of the show discussing that. We discuss why we fake it. We discuss um, when kind of when that starts for a lot of people. We discuss how to unravel that if you've been in a relationship for a long time and maybe you started out by faking it for whatever viable reason and now you don't want to do it anymore and you don't know how to like work your way out of that without really upsetting the relationship. I think these are really important, if not uh, a little uncomfortable topics. And again, this is something that while you might get a little squeamish listening, it's incredibly common. And that's why it's so important that we talk about this so that people don't feel isolated. So the people don't feel like they're stuck, like they're broken, like something's wrong with them, like they're never going to have the sex life or the relationship that they want, um, that they so desperately, desperately desire. So I'm excited to share this information. I, as always, I would love feedback on this. Um, I have one really humiliating moment in the show, (laughs) which... I just, I have to like out myself before you hear it because you're going to hear it and you're going to be like, Kristen, why? Why did you say that? I said erroneously, like completely erroneously that someone who was 50 years of age was the greatest generation. (laughs) And that could not be further from the truth. I have no idea why I said that. Um, that, that is not accurate in any way, shape or form. In fact, if you Google the greatest generation, those people were born between 1901 and 1927. So not even close. Um, 50 year olds are not the greatest generation. Sorry. Sorry to report. Also, I just, I felt so stupid after I said that. And, uh, it was early on in, in the, the show, like I had only recorded, I think this was maybe the third conversation that I recorded and I didn't do what I would have done now, which is just like laugh about it and call it out right in the moment. I just kind of let it go and it's fine. Cause Catherine made fun of me for it later. She referenced it again and, um, you know, set it straight, but I just, I felt really dumb you guys. So, you know, enjoy that as well. Okay. I think that's enough babbling. Uh, Oh, no, no, no. One last thing. One last thing. This is the first time that I am announcing my brand new Patreon page, you guys. I'm going to link it in the show notes, but it's a place where you guys can sign up for membership for very small amounts of money that support the show and help me pay for the tools that I use to create it and put it out every week. Because obviously, um, it is a passion project and it is not really making any money. It is only uh, costing me money. So I love doing it. It is, uh, oh, my daughter just filled up her pants. I'm not sure if that came through on the audio, but I thought I would just call that out too in case you heard it. That's what that was. Uh, mom life all the way. Anyways, Patreon, I have two tiers right now. I have a $5 a month membership and a $10 a month membership. The $5 a month membership basically just gives you bragging rights. And that is for people who would, who feel inclined to send me the equivalent of a latte once a month 
to help me pay for the show. You love the show, maybe you're subscribed to it, and you would like to see it continue. And so out of the goodness of your heart, you shoot five bucks my my way every month to help me keep the digital lights on. Um, and then the second tier where it gets really fun is 10 bucks a month. You basically get unfettered access to me and a bunch of exclusive content. I am going to start hosting in our private Facebook group um, and asking for a friend live once a month so that you guys can come on and we can talk about literally all of the things in real time. It's just another way to connect amongst ourselves as a community, as women, as sisters. Um, Yeah, as sisters. I was going to say men are welcome too, but that's not, you know, that's not really true. We love the men and one day I will do, I will definitely be doing stuff with my husband, Mike, so that guys can join. But right now we're doing it just for the sisters so that it continues to feel really safe. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to do that. And then starting this week. So as you're listening to this right now over on the Patreon page, once you've signed up for the $10 a month, option, you get access to exclusive post-podcast commentary. So basically my biggest takeaways from the guests that I interviewed each week, uh, bloopers, maybe things that were going on during the show or in my life around the time of the show that is relevant. Maybe we'll talk about mistakes. Maybe we'll talk about mess ups like my um, greatest generation dumbass comment, things like that. Uh, so it's going to be fun. I'm going to be uploading a video of me just chatting through, you know, what I learned and what was happening and what I have discovered since around whatever topic subject we're addressing in the show that week. So that's going to be super fun really excited to share it for with you guys. So just go to the show notes and check that out. And as always, I'm here for you. Send me messages. Talk to me. Uh, You can search Nothing Confidential on Facebook for the private Facebook group. I do have a page, but I really, I hate uh, Facebook. I kind of do. But the private group is cool because I just, I share a lot more in there than I do on the page because that's just, that's kind of the nature of it. It's like, again, it's like my living room. Like, Once you're inside of my living room, I will share my soul with you, but I'm not going to like share my soul on the sidewalk outside of my house. So come on in to the inner sanctum of the private Facebook group where I'm going to start doing a lot more stuff. Okay. I love you guys. I hope you enjoy. This is a really long intro. So, you know, if at any time you needed to just hit skip to get right to the meat, I highly encourage that. Also, I hope it brings you a little bit of joy knowing that the entire time I was recording this, my daughter was loading up a blowout diaper, um, which has seeped through the back of her onesie. So I'm going to go now and take care of that. Enjoy. I'm into Catherine, thank you so much for being on Nothing Confidential, the podcast. (laughs) It's so my pleasure. I'm so excited to be here. Um, you guys, I have so many things. This episode is going to be extremely packed. So feel free to uh, get out a notebook or an audio recorder or whatever. Come back, listen to it in pieces, whatever makes sense to you guys, because Catherine is one of my favorite people of all time to speak to about sexuality and relationships. And she just has such a, an insightful and educational way of, um, sharing information. And I am just 
I'm like addicted to it. So I keep coming back. Oh to my her. gosh. I'm so honored. <laughs> I say <laughs> I saved up a bunch of stuff for her. So basically we're just going to like dig into all of the things. Um, but to, to give everyone some context, uh, Catherine is a trauma and relationship therapist. Uh, she counsels people on intimacy and is also a sexuality kink. Um, and there's so many other things we could fill in here, educator, embodiment educator, but Catherine, mm-hmm. would you give in your own words, just a quick, like intro to yourself and things you would like people to know about you before I start assaulting you with questions? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I, d- I have been trying to come up with a really pithy, um, assessment of what I do. And the thing that I've most recently come up with, I don't know if I'm going to keep this for very long, um, is that a lot of the work that I do in addition to being a mental health therapist and trauma therapist is that I'm increasingly doing work that I'm calling intimacy consulting, Mm -hmm. um, where I'm talking to it's relation. It's, it's like relationship therapy. It's, it's, it has elements of sex therapy. Um, and it has elements of mindfulness and embodiment to it. And it's just a way of talking to either individuals or couples about ways to understand themselves better and communicate better about what they want in terms of their intimate lives, whether it's emotional or um, erotic or sexual. Um, Ooh, I love that. Yeah. That's so like all encompassing and holistic. <laughs> I'm working on that. I'm working on that. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you guys, Thanks. I was connected to Catherine. I was trying to go down the rabbit the rabbit hole and figure out like how I got connected to you. And I think I, at some point, and this was a long time ago, I made uh-huh. a post. I think I had tagged Kimberly Johnson. Yes, who is incredible. It's all about Kimberly Johnson. That's what I thought. I had tagged yeah. her because she's phenomenal. Um, Kimberly, if you're listening, you're next. Uh, <laughs> I'm out to get her <laughs> as well. Um, and she had responded to my post by tagging Catherine. And I was like, yes. oh my gosh. And so I like followed it over over to Catherine oh. stuff, started reading, and that was how I got introduced. So even though Magamama and I do not know each other personally as of yet, she had the foresight and the wisdom to connect me to Catherine all that time ago. So that's how well, we found each other. <laughs> to be honest, Kimberly is actually one a very close friend of mine. Oh. Um, and that's how I and that's how she and I know each other is that we used to do yoga together 20 oh years gosh. ago in New York City. And so um not only is she a super duper rock star in every possible way, she's also like an unbelievable friend and an incredible person. Oh and my so, gosh. Did not so, even know that. So, yeah. okay. So, so I literally yeah. am separated by one degree. Um, yeah. And for you guys who the name sounds familiar, the thing you probably know her for is that Kimberly wrote um, The Fourth Trimester, which is a book that I constantly am talking about and telling everybody to go get. And uh, But she just, she her work is so expansive. It goes so far beyond the postpartum field. Um, she's just, she's got a hand in literally everything when it comes to the sexuality space, the embodiment space. There's just so many things that um, she is, she is like, on the forefront of forging the path for other people on. So of course you guys are connected. It makes perfect sense to your friends. <laughs> well, and she's just, she's just getting, Oh my gosh. Yeah, she her, is. her upcoming stuff is really, really exciting. So yeah, um, no, I did yeah. not mean to like sidetrack to gush about, um, Kimberly. no, but I, However, I'm happy to, yeah. I'm always okay. happy to gush about Kimberly. So. Okay, good. Great. Well, yeah. <laughs> 
Awesome. So basically that was how Catherine and I got connected. And then I had her, we've interacted and collaborated on some other projects um, as I've kind of gotten clarity about where I wanted to go with Nothing Confidential as a platform and as an online space um, to normalize these conversations. And she has Mm -hmm. been so vital. Uh, Thank you. You're so welcome. I loved having you in the living room, which is not something that that I shared with the audience much on, but we'll be doing a second round soon. So I'll be in touch about that for sure. Um, But yeah, I just, I wanted to get you here because as I was sharing with you, as I've recently kind of focused in on the asking for a friend element. I've had a lot Mm -hmm. of women who have Mm -hmm. written in lots of anonymous questions and some of them are really heavy. And so I like set them to the side so that I could call you and talk about them. (laughs) Okay. Well, I hope I can do them justice. I I have full faith that you can. So we're going to jump right in with that. Normally I do a lot more um, chit chatting, but I just feel like these are so vital and that you have so much wisdom to share. So the first question that I received um, was a big one. It was from a woman who said that she had not had an orgasm in Mm -hmm. years, not even alone. And there was like a dot, dot, dot. And then she said, I've been faking it with someone I really care about. How do I untangle that? And so for me, as soon as I read that, obviously my whole body, I just wanted to reach out and like hug this woman, embrace her, let her know that like- So much compassion. Yeah, so much compassion. And, And that she shouldn't feel any shame because it's not our faults that we have been taught to rush through things, to ignore things, to fake things, to perform. Like this is something that has been deeply, deeply ingrained in us. Yeah. And it's not, so she's not a bad person. She's not a dishonest person. Like I just, I want her, if she's listening, I want her to feel that first and foremost. Um, but I just kind of wanted to dig into like the nuances yeah. and the and the depth of this from an emotional standpoint. Because as I shared with you, I plan to address this question um, with an expert as far as like hormonal and physical yes. reasons why you might not be achieving orgasm. But from an emotional, intimate, mental place, um, let's, yeah. let's dive into that one. I mean, I would have a lot of additional questions, right? Because yeah, I would want to make course. an assessment. And so I would want to know, like, has she been orgasmic in the past? What have been the situations in which she has been orgasmic, right? What mm-hmm. has facilitated that for her? Are there changes in her life in addition to hormones? Like, mm-hmm. are there medication changes? Are there large quantities of stress? you know, is there the birth of a child? Is there care for an elderly parent? Is there financial stress? Is there um, relationship stress of various sorts? Mm -hmm. Is there loss? Because all of those components really play into one's ability to drop into the body in the way that needs to be done in order to feel free enough to have an orgasm, Mm -hmm. right? So um, I would want to also, I would be really curious about what her relationship is to being touched right now, what her relationship is to her body in general. Has there been like any kind of illness, any kind of um, weight loss or gain that may or that may have um, impacted her own relationship to how she feels in her body? right? And her comfort level with her body. How active is she physically? Because generally when people are more physically active, they're more connected to their bodies. That's not 
at all meant to be a like, well, everybody should exercise all the time because that is not what I mean. But like, does she stretch? Does she have a kind of, you know, does she have any kind of sensual practice that she has with herself? Is she, how does she touch herself in the bath and the shower? Right, like all yeah. of those sort of nitty nitty gritty ways of engaging with our bodies that we do on a day to day um, measure. You know, some of us when we are in the shower, we really enjoy it, and we like sensually enjoy, um, you know, soaping ourselves up, and we might hang out in there for a while. And other people, it's like in, out, done this is a utilitarian thing. So I would just be Mm -hmm. very curious about her whole relationship to her own sensuality. I'd be really curious about like religious background Mm -hmm. and how that may have impacted beliefs around sexuality and also beliefs around aging and sexuality. I have no idea how old this woman is, Um, but life stage beliefs about what is appropriate for um, women in particular, cis women in particular, um, about, you know, it's okay to be sexual at this age, but it's not okay to be sexual at this age. And it's okay to have pleasure at this age. It's not okay to have pleasure at this age. You know, all of those pieces I would just be super curious about um, because all of these factors that I've just named Mm. are, all of them could be areas where um, her mind is getting in the way of her physiological response. Mm. Right. Yeah. So the good news is that there are so many possible reasons, which totally. might not sound like good news. It might sound overwhelming, but at the same time, it basically sheds light on the fact that there are so many ways in which we can be obstructed from yeah. achieving orgasm and feeling in touch with our bodies and with you know orgasmic nature and all of that. Yes. And so yes. therefore we have a lot of places to explore. So if, if you're feeling hopeless or if you are experiencing any of those things, they're very normal things. Like they're very yes. common things and they're yes. nothing to feel broken about or ashamed of. 100%. Things that impact, that impact us. Yeah. And there's this sense of pressure that a lot of a lot of people of all genders experience, but that I think there's a particular form of it in cis, in straight cis women in particular. But um, actually, no, I don't think I don't think orientation actually has anything to do with it. It's just that there's this message that a lot of cis women get that they're supposed to be open and ready and um, receptive and responsive to sexual stimulation from their partners at all times and that they owe their partners um, the way that they sort of show appreciation is by responding um, to erotic stimulation and particularly to have orgasms. And that can in and of itself create a lot of pressure that makes it that much more difficult to orgasm. Yeah. Well, and it's right? that, it's that Harry met Sally, you yes. know, uh, condition and yes. it's the whole, like, we want them to feel like they're doing a good job. And so we right. encourage them by being like, right. oh, vocal. And if we, you know, have spent too much time or maybe we learned about sex from porn because we didn't yeah. grow up in a place where totally. we feel safe to ask or explore. And so that's the only thing we have to kind of go off of. So we're emulating those, you know, sounds and those actions, even though nothing is happening for us, because as we know, like we're the crock pot and, you know, they're broil. So (laughs) we're on different timers yet. We like feel pressured to, you know, like they're going for it in like four minutes and we're like, Oh yeah. Uh huh. Let me get there. 
Um, but you know, it's just like I always say, a fake orgasm is an orgasm. So who's winning? <laughs> like, yes, not, exactly. You know, it doesn't. And then I would get super curious about what her sex life with her partner is actually like. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would probably like if I was treating her or treating them, I would really encourage them. I would encourage her to engage in a self-touch practice if she was capable of doing that. And by self-touch practice, I mean just like caressing her own arm and see, or just touching her own arm and seeing what feels good and like seeing what it feels like to actually touch and feel pleasure in any part of the body, right? And it could be when she's putting on lotion or any other time. And then to engage with that um, with her partner as well. I mean, this is, this is like sex therapy 101. It's sensate yeah. focus, right? It's let's figure out what feels good. Let's take orgasm off the table. Let's remove the pressure of orgasm and let's start to see what feels good and um, what touch on different parts of the body might feel good. Empower her to say yes and no in that which could be very, very complicated, right? Because learning how to articulate ourselves during sex is not something that most people have ever been taught to do. Exactly. Right? No matter how sex positive you are. Um, And then to really just dial back to square one. Yeah. And and this is just, so for a lot of um, our listeners already, this is something that comes up really often. And it's the concept of shifting our thoughts and beliefs around what a sexual encounter is into more of a a pleasure focused um, encounter and getting out of that whole, like, you know, we're, we're working towards a destination and more like enjoying the journey and like resensitizing ourselves or reacquainting ourselves with what with that good because it that changes too like just all those things that you mentioned you know at the beginning yeah. all of the possible life changes and reasons and things that are going on it's like what feels good to us what felt good to us 10 years ago or even yes. 2 years ago or you know a month ago like yesterday feel yeah might not feel good anymore and yeah. so it's just like constantly being in relationship with ourselves so that we can you know basically stay yes. up to date on what 100% we need. Yeah. And the other piece is that, um, I mean, orgasms are wonderful, right? People mm-hmm. enjoy orgasms. They're great. We like them. We like them. Um, and an erotic exchange does not, to, does not have to include an orgasm to be highly pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also our definition of orgasm is often fairly limited, right? Because it's, yeah. on, it's on a male ejaculatory model. Whereas for cis women, um, I can't, I, you know, I think this really varies for people with um, gender expansive experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but for cis women in particular, um, there can be different kinds of orgasms. They don't have that, they don't always have that final like climax moment, right? Yeah. Some people achieve really high levels of arousal, which they experience as incredibly pleasurable and that are on the level of orgasmic pleasure, but they don't necessarily have that final, you know, jumping off the cliff moment that a lot of people identify as the goal. And so I would also be curious about, you know, is she getting aroused? Is the arousal pleasurable for her? What is her arousal trajectory? You know, is she actually enjoying what's going on with her partner enough to be like, you know what, this is pretty great. Or is, or is she not, right? Is she focused so much on the sort of concluding uh, climactic moment that she's not actually able to experience the pleasure 
along the road because a lot of times that happens that people are not able to acknowledge how much pleasure they're having because they're just so focused on conclusion and that's mm-hmm. not and that's not their fault that's our culture yeah, right absolutely well and this drop this just dropped in for me too j- uh, given the work that you do in intimacy yeah. can you talk a little bit about how basically like orgasm is this thing that we're all very much focused on. But when you are connecting from a point of pleasure and sensation, like orgasm has very little to do with intimacy, with building intimacy. Like it can, of course it can be like a yummy part, but it is not like essential to getting the the good, good out of a sexual encounter with a partner. If intimacy is what you're working towards, um, would yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the places where it really depends, where I really try to work with clients on helping them define mm-hmm. what, you know, as you were talking about earlier, on helping them define what is a satisfying sexual encounter for them. What is the whole point? I mean, I understand, you know, I understand uh, kind of the, th- for me, it's about erotic play, mm-hmm. right? It's about embodied erotic play. And that may lead to orgasms and it may not, right? Um, And if I like to try to imbue that intention with my clients, but also it's up to them, like for some of them, it really is about orgasm. And for some people, the act of causing or creating an orgasm for another client is the ultimate form of intimacy Mm -hmm. for a client. Well, it could be a client if you're a sex worker, um, but for a partner of any kind, right? Mm -hmm. The act of creating the content, the whole situation in which your partner, like that can be the most intimate thing because you see them in this incredibly vulnerable way. They Mm -hmm. surrender pretty much their entire body to you, right? Um, they, um, They show themselves in their most deeply kind of animal sense of connected to pleasure and you know there's no cognitive stuff going on necessarily for them um for other people being able to have that kind of release in relation to a partner is also an unbelievably intimate act Mm. right and it does create long-term intimacy then for other people um the the creation of intimacy has to do with starting out with just being able to talk about what they want, whether it's emotionally or sexually, or just in terms of pleasure in general, right? Or in terms of touch in general. I mean, in kink, it's not necessarily about pleasure. It can be about pain um, or it can be about power exchange, but it's very much about getting to the point where they feel safe enough to articulate their rawest desires to another person because that's an incredibly intimate and vulnerable thing to do, Mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So would you also just would you describe an example of what an erotic embodied experience would is or would be like for you in your in your case um yeah sure i mean for me um i mean i have a pretty varied like pleasure relationship thing i can do there's a lot of things that are really pleasurable for me um or that are desirable for me in terms of like intimate connection um it could be sort of personal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is called nothing confidential. So you get as personal as you want, but 
no pressure. <laughs> Sorry, not personal. Um, I mean, I, personal. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, for me, it can be any number of things. Like I have a partner with whom our whole relationship is long distance. And so, um, it's a lot about the erotic exchange of shared fantasy and then each of us touching ourselves in relation to each other's shared fantasy and feeling like the embodied response that I have when he sends me, um, texts or, you know, um, or messages that indicate that he's feeling arousal and that he's feeling excited by me. And then my body has this really, um, can have this really profound arousal reaction to that, which feels, um, like kind of a ripple up my spine or it can be, you know, it can feel electric. And then there's the, um, there's the exchange of then I share words with him and he has a response to that and he'll tell me what his physical response is. Right. And we describe that for one another and that's really playful and really delicious. Um, I also have a partner with whom we do much more physical play, right. Where, you know, we've talked about the things we like. We talk about the power dynamics that we, um, that we enjoy that exist within our relationship. And I, I really like to underline that there's power dynamics in every sexual relationship. Oh yeah. Whether right? you, you acknowledge them or not <laughs> or play right. into them or, you know, give them, highlight them or not. They're there regardless. Yeah. And that's something that I really like to talk with clients about is like, mm. do you like to be in charge more? Do you like to be the person who's being acted upon more? Do you like to switch it? Are your desires and your partner's desires compatible, right? Um, what do you like about each of those things? Um, and so in my more power exchange relationship, um, I mean, it just is a power exchange relationship. I'm just hedging. Um, you know, I'm more of the receiver of whatever it is that he's going to wants to do. And there's a whole world of fantasy and intimate connection and deep emotional connection mm. that then gets played out in the way that, you know, I get touched and the way that I respond to his touch and the way that, um, that we talk about that touch and the way that, um, and the way that ultimately it either conclude, you know, that it concludes, which can mm. include orgasm or it cannot depending on what the goal of the, of the transaction is. Um, and I use the word transaction kind of deliberately because I think that like sex is kind of transactional and that's okay. Yeah. I think it's okay to own the fact that sex is transactional, um, that that doesn't make it bad, right. That it doesn't have to be this like selfless mutual thing all the time because that's kind of a fantasy that people get stuck in. Um, and then they feel like they're bad for wanting things or, you know, mm -hmm. maybe wanting to be more active or wanting to be more servicey or whatever their particular desire might be. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I'm being a little bit vague, but no, that's okay because I, I don't want to, I want to wrap up this one scenario before I get too far into that. I will come back okay. because I want, I do want to ask more questions, um, around specific like kink and power dynamics yeah, sure. and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so moving down to just the, the bottom of her question, because this is the part that really yes. makes me feel for her is as far as the, the faking it and, and feeling guilty and wondering how to start untangling that. Now, yeah. obviously we, we don't know, again, there's like so many things we don't know. We don't know, um, you know, how it started, but let's, let's play pretend just because I have known enough women, different ages in my life, had real yes. conversations with people like it, this is not uncommon that especially 
if you become sexually active or, you know, in your early twenties, when you are learning your boundaries and you are figuring out who you are as a person and you are learning to stand up for yourself and ask for what you want and communicate and all these different things. It's Mm -hmm. like so many of us, I think, start early on um, with these patterns, it's like you, you learn to fake it early because you think you're supposed to right? and getting out of that habit as you get older can be very hard, especially if you've been doing it for so long. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to think of the best way to like open this up for more conversation and get, um, you know, thoughts and and support from you around it for people who are dealing with this, because I know there's a ton of shame around this because especially women who started that way very innocently, um, out of a place of being uncomfortable and not confident in their bodies and their, and their experiences have found themselves with somebody who they love. I think that they have attached a moral issue to the fact, like they feel like they're lying to their partner and I'm sure that for a lot of them, it feels very high stake because if they, yes. if their partner feels like they have an incredible sex life and if their partner is somebody like you were mentioning before, who for them, the mm-hmm. act of bringing someone to orgasm makes them feel like really, really good. But all of that is fake. It's like, I'm sure these people, they're like, how do I ever get out of this yeah. thing that I've created? Because feel so trapped. I tell, yeah. If I tell them then they will never believe anything I say ever again and trust is broken and the whole world comes crumbling down. So it's like, I I feel so deeply, like my gut clenched when I read that just because I can't imagine trying to unwind that regardless of how she got there. Um, what, what thoughts do you have around this? Because I just, I keep feeling like, I'm like, this isn't your fault. Like this is a problem yeah. that has been created and lots of women I think probably deal with it. And I, I yes. want to help them. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think the first thing I would want to do is just try to take the pressure off for the, for this person asking the question, you know, and just let them know that they've engaged in a behavior that we've, as women have pretty much been trained to do. Um, it's, I don't know how true that is anymore, but I know growing up for me and I'm, I'm 49. Um, I know growing up, the idea of faking an orgasm was just sort of something that you were told to do. And I remember making a resolution really early on that I would never fake an orgasm and that that was like a pretty radical feminist decision that I made. Yeah. Right. That was like facilitated by the fact that I lived in a, in a relatively unconventional culture. I grew up in New York city. And so, um, it wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot, like a lot of normative stuff in a lot of ways. Um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it is, it can be. So in any case, I would just really normalize the predicament that she's in, because I think, as you said, there's so many women that are already in that predicament. Um, and, Um, And then I think what I would probably do is I'd want to encourage her to think about like, what's the greater risk? Is it a greater risk to keep doing what it is that she's doing and be unhappy and unsatisfied and feel like she's being dishonest with her partner? Or is it a greater risk to kind of slowly, gently open up the conversation around sexual intimacy with her partner, Mm. right? And those are both high risks and either choice is valid, right? it's not that there's a right answer here at all. Like, I just want to say that like, if you fake orgasms regularly and that works for you, go for it. Right. Like, like if you're getting fulfilled some other way that feels, you know, within 
I guess, uh, the bounds of your relationship or, you know, whatever, like if you're having great experiences and they're feeling celebrated and then you go and get off on your own or something like, right. Or even if like, that's what helps you end sexual encounters that you don't really want to have continue going on because they're Mm -hmm. not that pleasurable. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I just want to be done. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the thing. Like there's so much pressure on, women now to have like great sex all the time. And for some women, it's actually not that high a priority or they feel like faking orgasms can be an indication of just like hopelessness. And it's an assertion of power of like, okay, this is done now. Yeah. Right. I'm done now. Yeah. Um, And maybe they have an autonomy. point. Yeah. Right. And like, maybe they have an autonomous sexual practice where they like experience a lot of pleasure and that makes them happy and like maybe they don't we know that's not the case with our person who's asking right, the question now. right because she's and so some kind of way right. about it yeah because she's <laughs> so you know i think that it would be a an examination of like how safe do you feel being honest with your partner mm. about all kinds of really vulnerable things and what might be some places to start experimenting with being honest um, or being more vulnerable, um, about things that you have not felt safe talking about in the past and starting to like test the waters of how that, you know, of how that goes. Um, or maybe even potentially raising some theoretical questions or some theoretical things of like, Hey, what would you think if, you know, if you heard about someone who had been faking orgasms, Mm, right? Um, I mean, that might not be such a great experience because it might be a place where the partner would then be like, oh my God, that's the most awful thing in the entire world. (laughs) Or they might get suspicious and then that would be really discouraging. Yeah. I'm going to hang myself out on the line a little bit um, and and share some basically advice, just the way that my brain works that I have shared with friends who have brought me similar things. It wasn't as long-term, so it wasn't potentially as high risk as this. But again, like this is a huge, there's a lot of ego and feeling and things wrapped up in this. Totally. Um, so I have, you know, at times I have advised friends essentially to basically work backwards and make yeah. what they want true where it's like, I'm like, there's no reason for you to go die on the cross and like shatter your relationship with somebody that, yes. you care, that you've worked with, that you have so many other great things with. Like, there's no reason to go and dump it all out. Like you have to think about how that's going to impact them. But I do think that it's fair to begin entering into these more uncomfortable conversations. And maybe you start with saying like, hey, I have been struggling with something and I want to bring it forward to you. And I am not, you know, I'm not having success lately. Like I'm experiencing changes in what is arousing to me and what is not. And I am trying to navigate those and you're my partner and I care about you. And so I need to kind of go into more of an exploratory space with you to figure out what works for me now, because what was previously working isn't. Um, And kind of like bring them up to speed that way where it's not like, Hey, our whole relationship is a lie, but it's like, Hey, I really want to work with you to get like, I want satisfaction and what was previously working isn't working. So can we work on that together? Because it's, you know, it's not you it's, but I want to learn what is working for my body now and kind of taking it from like a fresh start so that they have the expectation that 
things are shifting. Things are different. The stuff that maybe they were doing every single time before and being celebrated for is not necessarily working. So they're more open to communication on the topic. Um, I just, I guess I kind of want to know if that was like, you know, I I don't want to be damaging to anybody, but I also, I think that is a very gray area where it's like, you're not lying to them. You are freeing yourself and creating a space where you feel safe to start doing this work now that you have come to a place where you can no longer go on the way you've been going. Um, I guess that's, yeah, that's kind of how I saw it because I was like, I just don't think that because one of, in this particular situation with, it was another friend of mine. She was just like, I just know that like this person will be shattered. Like I can't stand the thought of going to them and being like, Hey, we've been together for five years and I've been faking orgasms all that time because we were 20 when we met and I didn't know what the fuck was going on with me. But now like, I love you and we have kids and I want to be with you forever and I want to orgasm. So like, how do we start working this in a more, you know, evolutionary direction. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really like that idea. I mean, I, I, what I, I, I like the idea of working backwards. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I was thinking of is like, you don't necessarily have to have a big conversation about all of this. Um, I mean, it, it raises a lot of questions about like, what is sexual honesty mm-hmm. and like, how much do we owe complete um, disclosure of our internal worlds to our partners? Right, which I think is a gigantic question. Um, well, that, and I don't, I don't think there's one answer to that. <laughs> and I that exactly, and I agree with that. And so, I think one place to work is to work backwards, is to just like to just stop doing it, yeah. right? To just stop, decide that you're not going to do just it anymore. Decide you're not going to do yeah. it anymore, and to see what that's like, for, yeah. or even to just make the decision and see what that feels like in your body, yeah. right? And then to see what it's like to have sexual relationships with, you know, or to engage sexually with your partner and not do not communicate in a way that feels inauthentic. Yeah. Right. And to experiment with that, with what that's like and to take it, you know, to take it slow. Like this doesn't have to be some big abrupt change. Like, oh my God, we have to have this great big talk. Like, yeah. And then gradually to sit, to start to play with talking about what things are that might be more pleasurable or might not mm-hmm. be right i mean the question one of the questions i would ask is are you able to communicate what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy in the moment and like do you and your partner talk about like do you have kind of a postmortem about your sex life or do mm-hmm. you talk about like hey you know i really liked when you did this thing but when you did this thing that didn't really feel that great so maybe you could try it this way next time that would be super awesome yeah. Right. Like I'm just to start the process of trying to communicate about sex and seeing what the obstacles are to that and then working with those. Um, I mean, I definitely think also that there's potential to, you know, work with a sex therapist um, or potentially to work with like a couples therapist that is versed in sex because not all couples therapists are therapists are versed in sex therapy and so that can be limiting when the expl- when the explicit project is to work on a conflict around mm-hmm. sexuality um and so yeah but to just maybe take just again take the pressure off and be like okay how can i experiment with behaving differently and yeah. how does that feel and how does my partner react and does that sort of organically create um, situations where we can start to talk about this 
not as a like, oh my God, I've been betraying you for the past five years or whatever, (laughs) but in a like, hey, I'm going through this process of self-discovery and, Mm -hmm. you know, because this is really connected up with identity for a lot of women, right? It's just a huge, it's a huge thing. And a lot of women also feel... I'm encountering this with one of my clients right now. Like they feel a lot of shame when they're not able to orgasm based Mm -hmm. on what their partner is doing because they feel like they should be able to. And so on the one hand, this is simple. It's about orgasms. And on the other hand, sex is so holistic and it's so connected to every other part of what's going on in our lives that it opens up a gigantic can of worms. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I also was thinking as you're talking that like tying in that intimacy piece, it could also be really helpful to somebody dealing with this as well to just say to their partner, Hey, you know, I have been, I'm wanting to evolve the intimacy portion of our relationship. And because, you know, because we're building something that is going to last for a really long time. And I would love to experiment with, like I've been reading or listening to podcasts or whatever. And I would love to experiment with taking orgasm off the table sometimes. Yes, exactly. Time with you and, and learning each other's bodies, you know, on a regular basis and being with you and growing close with you without the pressure of an orgasm every time, because I I really want to deepen this emotional portion of our relationship as well. Well, and the playful and pleasurable part, right. That doesn't necessarily have to be about genitals or about Mm -hmm. orgasm, right. Because it's just sensory sensory and it's just physical play, right. Mm -hmm. It could be wrestling. It could be like teasing each other. It could be tickling. It could be all kinds of things that bring people close and um, are fun. Right. And I get, and also I would say that, you know, for some people it would be about talking about like, Hey, I really want to build this with you because we're going to be together forever. Mm -hmm. For other people, it might be like, Hey, this is the relationship that we have. And one of the pieces that we really enjoy together is our physical sexual relationship. And so, you know, that's something that I would love to really work on regardless of how long our relationship is going to be or regardless of the, of the role that this relationship plays in our overall lives. I mean, this is important for people who are long-term monogamous for sure, but it's also important for people who maybe live, you know, polyamorous or open relationship lives or who are more sex, who are just more sex positive Mm -hmm. and want to have more relationships that, or who have sexual intimacy or physical intimacy as a really important factor in a, in a, an array of relationships because sex plays a really different role for mm-hmm. really different people and it's differently intimate for different people. Yeah. And I would say even for, um, obviously I don't want to, I don't want to exclude anyone, like for people who are working on being consciously single too, it's like, you're not totally. having, you don't have the same partner over and over. Gigantic. And so obviously yeah. like just being able to create a healthy sense of intimacy with someone in a moment is very important. Like that's great for your mental and emotional well-being. So that, yeah. So definitely not speaking to long-term monogamous only. Like I want everyone to, to feel like that's something that's important. Like that's really important in, in our sexuality as human beings. It doesn't matter what kind of coupling you're in. Well, and I think that the piece that that's then getting to is that this is very much about a certain kind of empowerment, right? Mm -hmm. It's empowerment to speak about what your body feels. It's empowerment to speak about what your own needs are. It's empowerment to speak about your desires. It's empowerment to articulate your needs to a partner 
Um, and that's what I would really hope for, for this person asking the question is that it sounds like she's feeling in a really disempowered place around sexuality and around this relationship in general. And so what is possible for her in starting to come to a place where she feels empowered to connect with herself and to articulate what she finds? Mm, I love that. Um, and I think that this would be a good place to transition a little bit, sure. um, in, into the next, the next question. And it's not as much, it was a specific question, but I've received multiples kind of in this genre, which are coming from women. Um, so you shared that you were 49. So a lot of, you know, I have a lot of listeners who were anywhere from, you know, 23 to 60 honestly. And so I have my, my group who are approaching menopause. They may may not be 50 yet. Um, but the way I think I had put it to you pre was just like, they're trying to figure out how to navigate their sexuality, their desires, and, um, basically their, their, well, their desirability in a society where people are like, this is the age where people start to tell you that you're no longer sexually viable. Like you don't, you can't have kids anymore. You're not having a period. You're not young. You're not this, you're not that, you know, which is ridiculous because we all know that (laughs) this is something very phenomenal happens to a woman when she gets to this age. I think it's a very powerful age, actually, when you look at um, energy shifting and and the creative and sexual power that kind of gets reignited and reclaimed for no other purpose, but for yourself and not other people. And I think that that's really, really beautiful. Um, but I just, as someone who is approaching that yourself and working with clients who are in that space, could you speak a little bit to that? And then we can, we can just see where that goes. Cause (laughs) I feel like this is something I'm getting a lot of, um, inquiry around. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there's one layer which is engaging with the whole set of social expectations, right? And figuring out how you feel um, about sort of older, becoming invisible, right? There's this thing that happens where, um, or I've talked with this about a no- with a number of my um, friends who are going through similar uh, transitions of. Um, when we were younger, we got unwanted sexual attention sort of wherever we went. And then there's this moment that happens where suddenly you're like, I'm invisible. Like I'm not getting the winks or the nods or the hey smile, or, you know, you're not getting like the extra attention from the guy at the meat counter, um, (laughs) at the grocery store. And you're like, wait a minute, like, do I still exist? And then the question becomes, do you like that or don't you? Because Mm -hmm. some people really, really like not having to worry about feeling un feeling sexualized. Yeah. In a way a relief. it's a relief. Yeah. It's a re- it's a total relief. And then other people are like, no, I kind of miss it. Right. Like I kind of miss this like um gendered sexualization. And like now they can make the choice to engage in it if or or not. Right. And then a lot of it has to do, or what I've observed and is that a lot of it has to do with the way in in what with one's own relationship with one's body and how one translates that out into the world, right? And so, 
Um, am I going to make the decision that because my body is making whatever changes it's making, right? My hormones are shifting. Um, maybe I'm putting on weight in different ways. Maybe I'm, you know, my shape is changing. Maybe I'm um, feeling more or less sexual. Maybe I'm feeling more or less um, uh, like resilient in different ways. Like, how am I going to engage with that? Am I going to move into that from with a place of relaxation or do I, and that can still, and that can be a sexual place, right? Um, or am I going to um, kind of try to revitalize or find this as a place of revitalization um, in relation to sexuality and mm -hmm. in relation to feeling attractive in the world. There's a lot of sort of conscious decisions that are available to be made at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think again, we we get back to empowerment where a lot of people feel super disempowered. And my own experience is that if we can feel empowered, um, we actually can feel really alive sexually in the world and um, continue to feel desirable, right? But it has a lot to do with one's own cognitive orientation and one's sense of what's sexy. Because the thing is, what's really sexy is somebody who feels comfortable in their sexuality and yeah. is able to communicate that in an appropriate way and can be playful, right? That's ultimately what people generally find sexy if we're not just looking at um, people, you know, looking at photographs and magazines or being like, oh, that specific body type is what's attractive. There's always that person, whether they're a man or a woman or, a, you know, or of any gender in between, there's always that person who's got that like sexual sparkiness that you're like, oh, wow, they're really sexy, even though like I'm taking a look at them and they don't seem like the yeah. stereotypical thing, they right? And that's that it factor. You're like, they've oh, got hello. that it factor, yeah. <laughs> right? And you're like, I'm not supposed to think you're hot. Culture yeah. has told me that you are not hot, but oh my gosh, like I sort of want to be near you. There's yeah. just something magnetic about you. And so I think it's really an opportunity um, to embrace those parts of oneself that are really unique and also to embrace one's relationship with um, one's own sensuality, right? Mm. That's, that's what... Um, that's what sexuality like during perimenopause and um, and after menopause is very much about. It's about deep, it's about making a commitment to an ongoing life of eroticism and pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. Because it can go off the rails easily and a lot of people are happy about that. Um, but if you're going to continue to engage in it, you know, it's a use it or lose it thing with the tissues of the, you know, the actual tissues of the yeah. Um, of the vagina and the vulva and, um, and also with that sense of eroticism in our bodies, right? The energy of pleasure, the energy of arousal. Um, and so, you know, are you going to make a commitment to uh, having, a, you know, an exploratory sensual practice with yourself that may or may not have to do with orgasms? Are you gonna have a masturbation practice? Are you gonna reconnect um, with whatever partner you might have and be like, hey, let's explore what feels good to me now. And let's explore what feels good to you now. And like, let's make this fun, right? It's not procreative. Mm -hmm. Optimally, we're not as busy as we used to be, but we probably still are. <laughs> um, but like, let's figure out what feels good, right? And let's figure out how I can feel good in my body, even though the culture is telling me that I need to do these six things to stay youthful, because that's the only way that I can be attractive, mm. right? 
Yeah. Um, so, so you, so you recently, uh, a couple things, my brain is literally like a pinball machine. I'm like, there's so many things. <laughs> I'm like, there's so many places we could go from here. Okay. Slow down, Kristen. All right. The, the first one is, cause I'm, yeah. ex- I'm extremely curious about this. So you recently, um, it wasn't that long ago, you kind of went dark on social for a second and yes, then I did. reemerged and you had cut your hair very yeah. short. Yeah. And I feel like the post that you released was kind of like the beginning stirrings. You're like, I'll get into this more later. I'm still processing. Yeah. Um, but you basically, it, it really did feel like an empowering, like you taking a stand for reimagining yeah. your own sexuality, what feels good to you, what makes yeah. you feel sassy, what makes you feel good, regardless of what society tells us. Yeah. is or is not attractive. Um, can you share a little bit about that experience, whatever you feel comfortable with? Yeah. Um, I mean, I did, I did a ritual, um, with my, um, with my, one of my partners, um, where he shaved my head. Um, and, uh, that was something that he was interested in anyway. Um, and I had never done it and he actually, I was disappointed because I thought he was going to take me all the way down to the skin <laughs> and he was, he didn't want to like take me that far. Um, so we might do that again. Um, but it was, you know, there's a lot of symbolism to shaving your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had never done it. I had really long hair for most of my life. Um, and that felt like this gigantic place of, of both my sensuality and a place where I hid. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something about, um, the exposure. And also there was something I, I felt like I was going to look like a, um, a Buddhist nun and I was kind of into that. Um, <laughs> uh, and there was, and there was just no place to hide. And then there was this question of like, what is my femininity like if I don't have my hair? I mean, I wear, I generally wear my hair really short, but it still has a very particular kind of pixie style to it. Um, that, uh, it didn't have when it was suddenly like a quarter of an inch long. Um, and so it was kind of an opportunity for me, um, to see what it would feel like to be sort of stripped of this piece of femininity, um, and, or, you know, sign of femininity in any case. And also to just, I mean, it felt very naked and then how did I feel naked and how could I then, embody my own feeling of sexuality without this like really powerful sign of what, um, what femininity usually looks like. And it, you know, it was definitely in the context also of, of building relationship with my partner. Um, but it was, it was, it was actually way less terrifying than I had feared. I, um, I actually wound up feeling really empowered and really free, um, and really liberated to like, have my sexuality in just the rest of my body mm-hmm. and to have my sense of self in the rest of my body. I mean, it's easy for me on some level to talk about this embodiment stuff because I was a dancer and I was, a, I did a lot of yoga and I was a, mm-hmm. like a high powered yoga teacher for a while. And so, um, and then I've been doing so many, I've done so many embodiment practices pretty much since I was in my early twenties. Yeah. So, so it's, it's nature to you. It's nature for me. Yeah. It's my yeah. language, mm-hmm. right? My body is my language almost more. I mean, as much as um, words. And so, um, but it was a really, really interesting thing to see how I would walk and how I would stand and what kind of things I felt comfortable wearing and how interesting it felt to have like this contrast between this, um, not necessarily particularly feminine hair 
with um, wearing really femme clothes because I tend to wear pretty femme clothes because I enjoy that and that's what makes yeah. me feel in my own identity and in my sexuality. Um, so it was really, it was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. Um, I would do it again. Yeah. Um, and I, I enjoyed the experiment um, of pushing myself to a place that I didn't think I would necessarily like to go. Um, and it sort of helped me find more of like an intrinsic sense of who my, of my own, um, you know, gender and sexual identity, um, by removing this one, like particularly potent sign. Well, I think so many women, like hair is such a big deal for so many women and it it doesn't matter. That's one of those things that almost, uh, transcends, you know, culture, religion, you know, like yeah. I, I know a couple of cool chicks who have always dug short hair, but for the most part, you know, hair is something that matters to a lot of women, even women who, yeah. you know, are really proud of the fact that they're not super, like they don't really care about beauty that much, or they're not really into, you know, their, their bodies or whatever. Yes. It's like hair is still a source of pride for those women. So yeah, I just, I found that particularly potent. And I also am curious because as I'm listening to you talk, it's like, I'm, I'm thinking of a woman in particular who reached out to me because she is in her mid fifties. She uh-huh. has never, she's ne- she's one of those, you know, from the, the greatest generation who basically is like, she's on the tail end of it and d- doesn't feel or spent her whole life feeling like her job was constantly to give to others. And yeah. now, now her children are gone. She married someone older than her, which, you know, was sexy for a while, but now she's 50 and he's 70 and has problems getting erections. And, you know, she takes a lot of responsibility for that. She makes that mean that she is not attractive and that something is wrong with her because he doesn't, he can't get a hard on. And what I'm, what I'm thinking, I'm sure you have so many, so many thoughts on that. So what (laughs) I'm thinking is just, you said something really important a while ago, just about deciding, like when you get to this age, deciding what it looks like to engage in your sexuality on your own as an autonomous being. And like, are you going to have a self-pleasure practice? How are you dressing? What are you doing for yourself to stay vibrant and feel alive and experience pleasure? Yeah. Making yeah. it more about you than yeah. about any potential partner or any goal or any whatever. And I know that she's craving. I think she, the reason she asked that is because she wants to engage with her husband. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I needed more details from her and connected her with someone who could talk about yeah, the totally. aspects and, and potentially help him too, you know, if he can be helped. Um, but just like the idea of really focusing on yourself and not, yeah. you know, I don't know. I'm just like, that's not really a question. Um, mm-hmm. but I just, I, I just want thoughts around that, I guess. Cause you're, you're, I mean, I feel like you are doing that now. You, yes. you're a different situation. Um, than a lot of people who are listening because yes. my listeners found me, you know, because I was at a women's conference where, you know, a lot of these women have, um, religious shame from growing up kind of like yeah, I did totally. and, about and all of that. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah. familiar with the people who find me. So you're yeah. walking a different path than that. And, and that's completely fine. But I think that you are very powerfully in your body. And I just, I think listening to you encourage them, I guess, to make this more about them and less about 
I don't know. It just makes me really upset that she's making it mean that she's not attractive because we're 70 well, and can't. The first up. thing that I would say is that taking, like, for anyone, no matter what gender, to take personally whether their penis having partner is having, is getting an erection mm-hmm. is an, is an error, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's whether or not your partner is getting an erection is not about you right? If they articulate their desire to be there with you, there are so many factors that influence erection and its presence or absence. It's, it's not, it's almost never about the partner Mm -hmm. of the person getting the erection. And so that's a piece that I would really want to talk about first is that, you know, whatever the biological factors are in terms of like contemporary health, also aging, Mm -hmm. like people with penises stop getting erections as easily over the course of their age. It's as they're aging. It's just what happens if they're stressed about getting erections. The likelihood is that that stress is going to translate into their bodies and it's going to tense their pelvic floor and a tensed pelvic floor and trying to force an erection is actually the opposite of what will create an erection. Right. So putting pressure on the erection is never a good idea. It makes it worse. Yeah. (laughs) It makes it worse. Like it makes it physically impossible to maintain one because Mm -hmm. blood can't flow there. And that's what you need is blood. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the question, the other questions that I would start to ask is like, what does she need to feel attractive? Right. Does she need his erection? Does she need him to tell her that he thinks she's beautiful and sexy? Right. Can they, for his sake as well, make their sexuality less focused on erection uh, based sexual encounters. Like there's so many other things to do with, um, sex between a cis man and a cis woman Mm -hmm. than just penis and vagina sex. Right. Um, also soft penises can enjoy contact. You don't Mm -hmm. have to have an erection and an orgasm to enjoy pleasure, you know, and to experience pleasure. And so she can absolutely, give him pleasure and people work around soft penises all the time. And so this, I just would really love the opportunity to sort of break down the idea that like, it's not sex or sexy if there's not a hard penis involved. Mm. Cause that's, it's just not true. Well, and Um, that's been such a a central part of the last few conversations I've had. I feel like where it's, it's taking this like penis and vagina, like intercourse away from like intercourse is not the only form of sex, you know, like I was chatting with this awesome girl from Australia who had vaginismus and really, but didn't know she did for years and didn't know what was wrong with her because she waited for marriage to have sex and thought it was going to be great and all these things. And she and her husband were married almost seven years before they were able to achieve penetrative sex without pain once she realized what was going on and started working with a pelvic floor therapist. So I just, I, I am really passionate right now. It's just like a thing that I'm on about making sure that people understand that like sex encompasses so much more than just straight up P and V penetration. Like that is not sex. Like obviously, because that's very exclusionary to all kinds of other um, genders and couplings and pairings, you know, everything. So 
I think that's very important to remember, but yeah, I, especially I love especially as people that. age, you know, yeah. especially as people age, different yeah. things become more and less possible and appealing. Um, but also I really hear that this woman feels like she probably feels like she needs, you know, the validation of mm-hmm. her husband's arousal. And then that becomes a different question that yeah. becomes that becomes about exploring her identity and exploring what makes her feel um, wanted and needed in the world. And I mean, if she's in her early fifties, she's, she's just in Gen X. She's not in the greatest generation. She's not even a boomer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, she's like, she's in my generation. Um, and so, uh, yeah, what is it that she needs? Right. So if everything, if what's been affirming to her previously in terms of feeling attractive and sexual and, and desirable and valuable has been, um, her partner's erection, then this is going to raise all kinds of other questions for her about her value in the world Mm -hmm. as a person in general, not to mention as like a desirable woman. And that would be a really rich place to explore Mm -hmm. and probably also a vulnerable and painful one. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't, I actually don't mind sidebarring on this because I think that this applies to all, all types of ages and things. Um, I'll tell on myself about this as well, because my, so I'm at this moment, I'm like hugely pregnant. Like I'm waiting for the baby to get here, like in a couple of weeks. And, you know, I've shared recently and I, you know, I keep it light, but like something that has been a huge struggle for me in this phase of pregnancy has been the fact that my husband who loves and adores me has been yes. so good at maintaining the intimacy portion of our relationship yeah. and supporting me. Um, you know, he has struggled as far as, you know, being aroused by my incredibly pregnant state, like mm-hmm. you know, pre-pregnancy, obviously no problems. Um, and, and it just, for him, it's very, and, and that's super normal. Like we've had discussions, they've been uncomfortable, but we've talked about it multiple times where I basically am like, Hey, I just need you to know that like, I'm not, I'm not blaming you or shaming you. Like there are two dudes. Right. They're the ones who think it's like crazy sexy. And the ones who are like, no, it's a little alien for me. Like I kind of want yeah. my wife back. And yeah. you know, my husband is the latter. And so I don't want him to feel shame, but it also hurts my feelings yeah, that of course. he isn't attracted to me, you know, in that way right now. And so one of the, you know, indicators, I guess, of that is that beforehand it was like, I mean, boners are an easy way to, to know if somebody's yes. attracted to you. And I feel like when, you know, we met when I was 23 and we've been together for six years and, you know, it's one of those things where when you're 23, you walk in the door and we started out as friends. Right. There were definitely moments that we can now look back on and we laugh and we joke because like he would literally spring a boner when I got near him as if he had no power over it whatsoever. Well, he didn't. Right. And I really derived a great sense of pleasure and satisfaction. Yeah. And so the fact that like as a very pregnant person now, and I cannot inspire that same reaction from him, it makes me feel some kind of way, even though like I'm a very you know, self-assured, confident woman who knows, like I know all of the, the, the logical things that go along with something like this, but it doesn't keep it from like getting me. Like it's still, of course not. So I totally, yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, I relate to the fact that like, I'm like, I want him to have a heart on when I walk into the room, regardless of the fact that I gained 40 pounds. Like, I know that's not fair, but like, that's how I feel. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, so, and it's not, it's not unfair either. Yeah. Right. Like the desire to be wanted sexually, no matter what happens to yeah. our bodies is also a legitimate desire. Right. Yeah. And so, um, it's tricky. Like this stuff gets tricky. It does. Cause I know that he, I know that he wants me like as a person, like I know that right. he loves me, that he wants me that when, you know, like I, I know those things on a very like logical, even emotional level, but it's like, I know what you're talking about. Like it can be so challenging because I completely agree with the fact that we shouldn't be, you know, there's so many other indicators, um, and, and ways to engage and all of that. But I, I understand that, you know, you can't help it sometimes. It's like you want mm -hmm. those, those obvious signs of arousal. Like you still want yeah, those. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and of course, if I was, you know, if I was getting curious, I'd be like, well, what is your, what is your intimate relationship like now? You know, and are there ways that you two can engage in a mutually pleasurable way that may or may not be erotic, yeah. um, but that still maintains that sense of physical yeah. connection and there, and there are, and I mean, the answer to and, that is yes. Like there's a lot of that as far as like good. conversation, you know, we have a lot of conversation around how, like we do feel closer, like as a couple, we feel very much closer. Like I feel so, um, loved and so nurtured, which to me, I think I've separated from being mm -hmm. sexy, you know, it's mm -hmm, like, I feel very mm -hmm. taken care of, but I'm also like, oh, he's not going to like pull me into a bathroom, which is not exciting, you know? So it's kind of, right. it's that kind of thing where it's like, we really enjoy each other's company. Like there's no one I would rather hang out with than him. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just, you know, I, I don't feel that sexual charge there and it's harder for mm -hmm. me to initiate it because I don't feel as confident in my current state. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And different people feel differently sexual during pregnancy, yeah. right? Like, like my all sex drive is still there. The sex yeah. drive is still there. It's just me understanding that he isn't particularly finding pregnancy, like alluring and magical. Um, like kind of, kind of hampers my, you know, it's like, I'm not as likely to like jerk his pants down when he walks in and initiate a blowjob because it's really hard for me to move around. Like I'm sluggish and I have a huge stomach. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because I don't know how he's going to receive it. And then if I'm like rejected in any way, it just feels really terrible right now because yeah. I'm sensitive and emotional and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, all the things. Yeah. So I've worked myself into a tizzy around that somewhat, but we're so close to the end of it that it's going to be now a very, and we've talked about this too. I'm like, dude, you just got to get ready because I have no idea. Like once she exits the premises, like I have yeah. no idea, like we're going to have to relearn this whole thing. That's like, the thing. Have to go back together. Like what we did before may or may not be like what works afterwards. Like we're going to yeah. start from scratch basically once I'm healed up. So yeah. And the hormones, are you planning to nurse? Yes. So, so the hormones the from nursing have a really powerful impact mm. on sexual response mm -hmm. um, or can, not always, but they can have yeah. a pretty powerful impact on sexual response. And um, by and large, people who are in nursing have a harder time orgasming. Mm. Um, and so you'll just have to see how that whole piece Good to know. Uh, works out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's all kinds of stuff that people don't tell you. It's so true. And I get pissed. Period. I really get pissed about that. I'm like, how yeah. people you're like, this is, you're supposed to have our backs. Like these are right. things that we would like to know. You shouldn't like stumble onto these by accident. Have people um, told you that you're probably going to sweat like a pig when you're sleeping after you give birth? 
I have because, heard that. And I okay, kind yeah. of, sadly, I are, I already do. I have been yeah. so hot since I've been yeah. pregnant. Like, so my temperature is ridiculous. Like I constantly yeah. sweat now. Just but, be prepared yeah, with towels soak. by the bed. Okay. <laughs> because literally I would wake up and there were literally, you could see the drops mm. of sweat on my body. Mm. Cause you're, yeah. you're like, you're just yeah, like you're going out. Yeah. All the progesterone is leaving your body. At yeah. least that's what I think is going on. Um, I don't <laughs> want to claim to be more of a scientist than I am. Um, it's okay. We have lots of scientists we can bring on to validate information um, and whatever. Anyway. So anyway, it's, I feel like it's my personal mission to tell every yes. pregnant woman I know or pregnant person that I know that because nobody warned me when I yeah. went through it. And I was like, what is this? Mm. Yeah. So as usual, I've done a great job of starting the show off in order to help someone else and then making it about me and getting a free session at the end. So I'm really, <laughs> so, um, I would say to continue on that path, uh, as I'm approaching this, because you've already said some things that, are, that have caused me to, I'll be taking notes later. Okay. I'll be doing journaling around it later. Um, what would you say to someone, because uh, a lot of women listening are in a similar position, so you're about to go into new parenthood or your body is going through a huge shift and it's coming at you. It's like the train is coming. You don't exactly know what to expect because you've never been there before. Yeah. Like, what in your experience can help somebody, I guess, emotionally prepare for that or like develop a practice that's going to support them in processing it in a healthy way instead of it just like drowning them when it gets here? I think that the most important thing, honestly, um, for someone who's going to be parenting in partnership is to make sure that you are really on the same page with your partner uh, mm -hmm. as much as you can be before, you know, the reality of the baby arriving happens about how much work there is to do and how much support um, the person giving birth and the person nursing is going to continue to need um, beyond um, that's not that even dissimilar from them still from them being pregnant. It's actually almost more, um, you know, this is different for people who are going to be parenting individually or um, in community. Yeah. Um, but most of the people that I work with are people who are going to parent um, in a kind of couple environment. And the thing that comes up the most is that the non-birthing, non-nursing partner just doesn't quite understand how much exhausting work it is to be healing from giving birth and nursing and with the baby all the time. Um, and that, you know, they sort of, the, the non, the non, um, birthing parent generally kind of feels like, okay, well, like, let's go back to business as usual. And it's like, no, this isn't going to be business as usual for a really long time, for yeah. a really long time. And for so really. that, that making sure that that piece is really there that like, Hey, babe, I'm going to need your help in ways that you never even anticipated. And I'm going to be exhausted in ways that you probably can't even understand because the exhaustion of the nursing alone and the changes in the hormones and all that kind of stuff is so gigantic. And there's just this default understanding usually that the person who gave birth is going to be able to soothe the baby more readily, yeah. right? Because they probably are, because yeah. they are probably the one who has the, you know, the boobs. Okay. So, <laughs> um, and so, and to understand that your relationship as the birthing 
parent is your relationship to your body is going to continue to be really different than what it was because essentially you're still in a state of merger with the mm -hmm. infant, even though they're outside of your body now and that your relationship to touch and that your relationship to sensuality and that your relationship particularly to your breasts, but also to any other um, sort of erogenous zone could be really, 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 really different than it was yeah. before. And to just embrace a state of permanent flux or semi-permanent flux for at least the period through which you're nursing. Yeah. Because they've now become utilitarian and yeah. they're, they're very much uh, purpose-driven and not pleasure-driven. And sometimes yeah. from what I've, what I've been hearing and what's been shared with me by close friends is you just, you feel touched out or tapped out yes, by exactly. these people who need you. And it's hard to feel sexual about these things that are being right. so much for something so yeah. non-sexual. So yeah. Yeah. So that piece and just to, to try to, to hope that your partner will be able to have the patience and the understanding that the likelihood that you're going to return to some kind of sexual baseline or erotic baseline um, anytime soon is pretty small. Yeah. Um, and that again, we're talking about the re the redefinition of what constitutes sexual and erotic play and connection, mm. right? Because yeah. it might wind up be thing, being things that are really different. Now, that's not to say that you won't really enjoy, you know, PIV sex at that point that you're healed and ready to do it. Um, but it also might mean that your physical relationship and what constitutes like nurturing and romantic connection could be really, really different, mm. right? And that yeah. you might be a lot more interested in naps, right? Yeah. <laughs> than you like really a lot more interested in naps or like oh, yeah. a bath on your own, right? That like the romantic, most romantic and sexy thing that your partner can do for you might be to take the baby so that you can take a nap or take a bath Yeah, for like a while. And I think that's the only thing that makes, I mean, for somebody who has been as sexual and as I guess gratified, you know, as yeah. I have been in my relationship with my body and with my partner and all that before the baby the only comfort I have is that I have a legit true blue partner. So I will yes. give him, I will give him like major props for that. I, I yeah. fully, it's like whatever ends up happening, however it ends up, um, whatever ends up being our experience. I know that he is like in it, he's there, we'll figure it out and we'll make it out the other side at some point. But yeah, I really appreciate all of that and all of the, the support around that. Um, well, I like to keep my promises. We have already <laughs> been going for an hour and that, that is how these work. Like it is so, that was exceptionally juicy. And I'm hoping that number one, guys, I will be putting Catherine's information um, all over the place. So thank you. A, for the people whose questions I read, Catherine, yeah, if you want more from Catherine, um, get in touch with her directly and you guys can can do work together. But she's just a phenomenal um, human being and therapist. So Aww. I would highly encourage you guys to get in touch with her if she is speaking your language right now and you need support in this way. There is zero shame behind that. And I stand by the fact that literally every person on earth, regardless of 
your childhood upbringing, uh, whether it was perfect or not, you need therapy. You all do. Um, but I did, I did say that we were going to talk about kink. So what I'm going to yeah. have to say is that we, I'm going to have to have you back is what's okay. Um, I want to be so respectful of your time, but I have so many things you guys yeah, that I let's want do that. to delve into. So our next episode will basically love that. just be like kink and bondage and power play and all the things, because it's one of my let's favorite things to talk about. And yeah. I would love to share that. So we'll be back on that. Catherine, thank you so much for being here and for giving us so much of your valuable time and your insight. We're so grateful. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for the delightful conversation and the opportunity to talk about things I love to talk about. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to be on anytime. Awesome. All right. We'll be back okay. guys. Okay. Hey. Thank you so much for hanging in there and listening with an open and curious heart. I hope this conversation has inspired, educated, and entertained you, or at the very least, shaken things up in a productive way. Ann Voskamp says that shame dies when stories are told in safe places. So please share, rate, and review. Sending you love and dark chocolate. Talk soon.